This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. What a week it has been. My head is spinning, and we are lucky to have Mark Brewer, former Michigan Democratic Party chairman, on the line with us. He's going to try and straighten us out. Mark, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Bill. Okay, first of all, Iowa. In your view, uh, what did Iowa represent? What happened there and where we are going forward? Well, I think we're now seeing the unfortunate result of a state like Iowa being first. Um, you know, for years uh, they have maintained that monopoly, and it has an enormous impact. Uh, it affects people's fundraising. It affects people's campaign plans. All kinds of pundits, you know, predict the results based on Iowa. And when you have an unrepresentative state like Iowa that is now, you know, colossally messed up its process, to say something politely, uh, it causes all kinds of havoc in the nominating process. Uh, and I don't think we've seen the end of that of that havoc. You know, there's all this uncertainty about who won, about are the results accurate, just all kinds of problems. You think it's a certainty that the next time around in 2024, Iowa will not be first? I hope so. I hope we finally, and frankly, New Hampshire should go as well. Uh, those two states are not representative, certainly they're not representative of the Democratic Party, and they're not representative of the country as a whole. And, you know, to put these kinds of consequences on two very unrepresentative states, I just think is really unfortunate. If you were designing a presidential nominee system from scratch, you would never two states like them first. You would set up a much fairer system. Maybe it's rotating regional primaries, other kinds of ways to uh, even it out, level the playing field uh, so that candidates don't have to cater to two small and unrepresentative states. Okay, next we get to the State of the Union address by President Donald Trump which looked to me almost like a campaign rally and uh, Nancy Pelosi's tearing up his speech at the finish, and what did you make of that whole spectacle? Well, I mean, that's exactly what it was. It was reality TV. It was a spectacle, uh, clearly uh, Trump pandering uh, to the people he believes are going to support him, uh, just one pander uh, after another, just just appalling uh, performance there. And, you know, um, Nancy Pelosi offered her hand to him at the beginning of that, and he declined it. So the you know the uncivility, the incivility, uh, squarely uh, with Trump in terms of what happened that night. Just it was just appalling. Now Michigan had a role this year in the State of the Union that we have never really had before. We had our governor Gretchen Whitmer give the Democratic response to the State of the Union address. Uh, how do you think she did, and uh, what does it symbolize? 
Yeah, I was actually there. I was uh, grateful to her to invite me to be in the, the studio audience. I think she did a fine job. Uh, she, you know, she only had ten minutes to respond to the hour and a half tirade of the president, and she covered the bases. I think very, very well, which is what Democrats are actually doing around the country. You know, fixing our infrastructure, improving public education, providing access to health care. You know, actions speak louder than words, and I think she laid out a very compelling case what Democrats are actually doing and what would happen if a Democrat was elected president uh, next fall. I'm very proud of the governor. I think she laid out a very distinct and compelling alternative vision to what the president offered. Next, we get to Wednesday. Uh, You had the conviction vote in the U.S. Senate on the impeachment charges lodged by the U.S. House of Representatives against President Donald Trump. The vote uh, with only one dissenter from partisan ranks on either side of the aisle, and that was Mitt Romney, born and brought up in Michigan. Uh, How did you look at the result there? What happened? Well, that was foreordained. We knew that months ago. Uh, that the Republican senators, with one exception, are so intimidated uh, by Trump and his supporters, they are so scared of their political fortunes that they won't do the right thing, even though many, many of them said publicly that what he did was wrong. Um, But they refused to to cast that critical vote. Uh, My hat's off to Mitt Romney. I'm sure his parents are very proud of him today. Uh, that's the kind of son they raised who stood up for principle and did the right thing in the face of enormous threats and uh, it could be some terrible political consequences for him. But he was a real profile in courage, and, and my hat's off to Mitt Romney. Now, the next day, Thursday, Gretchen Whitmer and her budget director unveiled her 2021 Budget. I don't know if you've had a chance to look that over very much, but just from what you've seen or heard about it, what do you think? Well, it really does follow up on what she said in the uh, State of the State address last week uh, in terms of investing in education, uh, particularly early education, uh, health care, particularly for children and expected mothers. It really does reflect uh, what she laid out in the State of the State uh, last week, based on on what I've seen, uh, there's a lot of demands on the budget. Um, there's been a lot of diversions out of the general fund over the last eight years or so, and so she's had to cope with that. There's a number of lawsuits looming um, based on um, the misadventures uh, of the Snyder administration that she's having having to hold money back for. So they're trying to settle a number of those, but those can be a big drain on the state's pocketbook as well. But again, the budget. Uh, was a reflection of the vision she laid out last week. And I think that's the direction that people in Michigan want to go. Next Tuesday, we have another primary, or I should say the first primary, and that is in New Hampshire, which you've already discussed a little bit. I think you have a candidate in this race, and she is from a state next door to New Hampshire, Massachusetts. What do you think is going to happen in New Hampshire? Well, we'll just have to see. And this is, again, the consequences of Iowa. Um, there was there were immediate changes in the polling numbers in New Hampshire after after Iowa, attributable to nothing more than what happened in Iowa. And that's ridiculous that a few hundred thousand voters in Iowa can have that kind of, of impact. So we'll just have to see. My candidate is Elizabeth Warren. She's working very hard, not just in those states, but all around the country. She's had staff and volunteers like me working in Michigan for months. She is in this for the long haul. Uh, so we'll just have to see what next Tuesday brings, and then the pace will start to accelerate. Um, and it won't be 
too soon to get to an important state like Michigan, uh, where we're already voting. Bill, I, mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things that undercuts what happened in Iowa and New Hampshire. They're no longer really first. People here in Michigan um, can get their absentee ballots. They could have voted them by now or even before Iowa last Monday. So we need to do those kinds of things to end their monopoly on going first. We've got a census underway, uh, believe it or not, a headcount of population in Michigan. I know uh, Senator Gary Peters put out a release this week cautioning that there are as many as 800,000 people in Michigan that are hard to count. Uh, what about the census in Michigan? How do you think it's going from what you've seen and heard? From what I've seen and heard, I think it's going very well, despite a number of obstacles. I mean, the, the Trump administration has not funded it sufficiently. Uh, you know, up until last summer, there were, there were questions about what would be in the census in terms of questions. Um, the state has worked very hard, and I know local cities, particularly Detroit, are working very hard to try to make sure that everybody is counted. So much depends on the census, not just redistricting, um, but the flow of federal and state funds depends on that count. And so it's very, very important that people participate uh, so that Michigan gets its fair share of funding and representation in the Congress. Do you think Michigan is going to be pivotal by the time our primary rolls around on March 10th? Between now and then, you will have not only New Hampshire, you'll have Nevada, you'll have South Carolina, and you'll have Super Tuesday on March 3rd. Uh, a lot going to be decided, but then comes Michigan. Yes, I think Michigan is one of the first, if not the first, uh, I think, battleground state that is really up. Um, many of the states on Super Tuesday uh, are southern states that are staunchly Republican. Um, so Michigan, I think, will be a real test uh, for the candidates in, in a state that I think will determine the election next fall. Mark Brewer, you've done a great job. You covered a lot of territory in just about nine minutes. You, you haven't, Thanks, Bill. You haven't lost your touch. Thank you. All right. Good to talk to you. Okay, Bye-bye. great. Bye-bye. We'll be back. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with a key member of the Lansing Press Corps, Lauren Gibbons, political reporter for MLive. Lauren Gibbons, thanks for being with us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Well, I want to ask you, uh, we got so much we can talk about. Uh, the Iowa caucuses, the debacle out there, uh, and strangely enough, people don't realize Michigan actually is voting right now. I mean, there is voting underway in Michigan. In fact, there was voting underway in Michigan even before the Iowa caucuses uh, because we have now no reason absentee voting as a result of Proposal 3 that passed back in 2018. What is your reaction to Iowa and uh what do you think it means or doesn't mean uh, with respect to Michigan's upcoming presidential primary on March 10th? I think I think the whole country is watching Iowa and kind of worrying, you know, at this point, right? There's a lot of questions out there that still remain even days after the election, um, the caucusing began, um, that it, it's unclear whether these numbers are even accurate. I don't think that Michigan will see anything uh, similar to what Iowa has been experiencing. It appears that a lot of the issues with caucusing 
uh, in Iowa relate to this app. And obviously, Michigan does not caucus. We have a primary. So these are all paper ballots that are coming in. And the Secretary of State, uh, when they use certain technologies, make sure that those technologies are vetted and certified. There's some questions about whether this Iowa app was certified to be used in an election process. So there's a lot of situational circumstances in Iowa that are very unlikely to be replicated in Michigan. Now, that said, there is some concern among uh, city and county clerks around the state that this uptick in absentee voting in Michigan now could cause uh, some lengthy processing times uh, on election night. And so that means it could potentially be a later night for people waiting for Michigan results, if not in this March 10th primary, potentially in November. Isn't there a bill in the legislature right now to allow clerks to start counting absentee ballots before March 10th? Is there a chance that's going to pass and be signed by Governor Whitmer before our March 10th primary? So there is a bill circulating. It's really hard to say, obviously, whether or not that could get passed before March. It's coming up pretty quick at this point. But there is a lot of discussions going on in the legislature right now about whether clerks should be able to start processing these absentee ballots beforehand. I think a lot of clerks are, you know, preparing for this March election under the, um, you know, under the current rules, obviously, there's a lot of preparation that goes into uh, getting the election going smoothly. So I, I don't know that anyone is necessarily anticipating this is done by March, but we'll see. I mean, there's a possibility. Um, and it, I think there's plenty of time before November for some of the differences and some of the opinions about the legislation to get hammered out. Now, the day after the Iowa caucuses on Monday, on Tuesday, there was the State of the Union message by President Donald Trump. And then you had the response to the president's message from Michigan's own Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the first time in Michigan history that we have had a state politician in Michigan, a governor or a U.S. senator or anybody, picked as the partisan response to whoever is in the White House delivering the State of the Union address. How did you see that whole day unfolding Tuesday, the speech by Trump and then Gretchen Whitmer's response? Well, I think uh, I think they certainly presented a couple of different versions of the, of the Trump presidency so far. Obviously, uh, Governor Whitmer uh, posed this response that pushed back against some of uh, some of President Trump's accomplishments and that he listed throughout the State of the Union speech, and she she stuck mostly to some of these um, some of these bread and butter issues. I think she called them obviously throughout her campaign and governorship here in Michigan. She's talked about fixing the roads, working on health care, on the environment. And she kind of continued to share that message that those are the important things and that those should be uh, more in focus uh, as we continue moving forward in the election. And I think generally um, it does show how important uh, national Democrats think Michigan is as we go into this election process. We were obviously so close in 2016. Uh, Trump eked out the victory here. But I think both the Republicans and the Democrats are really looking closely at what Michigan voters are thinking, and uh, the governor's pick was uh, indicative of that. 
Next, on Wednesday, you had the conviction vote in the U.S. Senate on the charges brought against President Trump by the House of the impeachment charges, and only one senator breaking from his party, and that being Mitt Romney, born and brought up in Michigan, ironically. Uh, Mm -hmm. How did you look at that vote and what it means maybe for Michigan going forward, whether it's the presidential primary, whether it's the general election, or do you think it's going to be forgotten by then? You know, I think I think the vote was kind of expected at this point. There was a lot of Republican senators kind of kind of predicting that this would happen. Uh, there wasn't, as you said, much uh, partisan uh, partisan discord when it came to how people were going to vote. Obviously, the Democrats pretty much voted to convict, with the exception of Senator Romney. The Republicans voted not to, so it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a surprising vote by any means. I think it's really hard to say how Michigan voters are going to take this impeachment at this point. Uh, we are months away from the 2020 election, so it could it could stay in the voters' minds, but it, it may not. It's a it's a very quick um, you know it's a very quick election. Process. There's constantly stories coming out about new issues and new events. So yeah, I think it really remains to be seen about how much the impeachment factors into a voter's opinion on him. The next day, Thursday, Chris Kolb, who is the budget director for Governor Gretchen Whitmer, presented the governor's budget for the 2021 fiscal year. What did you see in that budget that's uh, worth noting? I think there's I think there's quite a few quite a few points that are interesting. Uh, one being that there is not a local road plan for funding. It's a big it's a big diversion from the direction that the governor took last year, in which she came out with the 45 cent proposed gas tax increase. This year, she did not propose something similar. Uh, she's kind of indicated that she's waiting for the legislature to make a move on that. She obviously introduced the bonding plan uh, during the state of the state the week prior. So I think that was interesting. Um, there are several other areas that she hit on some additional uh, some additional proposals for child care, for funding for new moms and uh, people seeking uh, maternity care, uh, maternity leave for state employees. These all came up and. Um, there was also a pretty big K-12 announcement, a 2.5, excuse me, um, for the universities, there was a proposed 2.5% increase, and there were also a several proposed increases for the K-12. Lauren Gibbons, that's a great sum up of what happened this week as well as anybody could do it. I mean, there was so much going on. Thank you so much, Lauren Gibbons, political reporter for MLive. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and this has been a heck of a week. Uh, You've heard a lot about it already, but uh, I'm going to focus on an event at the start of the week that we haven't even talked about, and that was the Super Bowl. And we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Bob Colt, who is president and CEO of Colt Communications and 
professor of practice at Michigan State University. Bob Cole, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be talking with America's greatest radio show host. (laughs) I don't know about that, but uh, I'm as good as you're going to be in the next 10 minutes, and I know you'll be good. I want to ask you about the Super Bowl ads because you are a longtime observer and critic of Super Bowl ads, and there were a bunch of political ads in the Super Bowl, and I just want to ask your overall impression. What do you think? Well, every year for the last 23 years, we've gathered the professors in the Advertising and Public Relations Department in the College of Communication Arts and Sciences to rate the ads in real time as they air. You get a little computer clicker, you click on the score, and people know exactly who's winning the ad game in the Super Bowl. And it becomes pretty important for politics because politicians traditionally have tried to step up and have a place, when it's appropriate, somewhere in the Super Bowl. This year, Donald Trump holds the title of the worst fumble and the worst (laughs) ad in the Super Bowl. We try to even give political ads a break, but that that ad was just... um, Well, why was it so bad? Well, first, he wasn't really in it. It was was just uh, people reacting to something that he had done. He had no involvement. The visuals were boring. It wasn't really creative. Didn't seem to have a very good strategy. Understood the message, but I think in some ways people um, reacted very negatively to it. I will tell you that over time, politicians have made their career based on a Super Bowl ad. Rick Snyder, no one knew who he was, but when he did an ad in the Super Bowl, he suddenly got on the public agenda and had some awareness and then slowly moved up into the polls in a crowded primary and you know the rest of the story he became governor right uh what other political ads are noteworthy didn't mike bloomberg have an ad bloomberg had an ad we didn't rate it as a, as professors because it was uh, in halftime and uh, usually we're uh, watching the halftime show and eating and drinking like other people. But we saw it, and, you know, it was better. It was okay. I will say, um, overall, he's had a really good ad strategy. I've literally seen dozens of ads that he's done in Michigan and other states. And that's how he's chosen to run his campaign, and I think it is really working for him. Yeah, especially after the results or non-results in Iowa. (laughs) Mass confusion, and the more confusion and the more the field is splintered up, the better it would look for somebody like Mike Bloomberg, wouldn't it? What a great strategy. I mean, you're going (laughs) to sit out to Iowa and New Hampshire where you have to shake a lot of hands and go to a lot of meetings, do a lot of talking. It's not Mike Bloomberg's, Bloomberg's kind of thing. It's not that he's bad, but you really have to campaign. Take the campaign to where you can buy advertising, really create some name awareness, and then participate in debates and other things that you would qualify afterwards. I think Bloomberg has the right strategy. You know, a campaign has to be a mix of media, public relations, advertising, all of that to get your message out. And Bloomberg is doing it the right way for him. Yeah, uh, what did you think about the ads overall in the Super Bowl this year? You say you've been looking at these for 23 years. How did this year stack up? 
We liked them. You know, they started kind of slow in the first and first part of the second quarter, but then they really picked up. The top five or six ads, um, you know, were just terrific, and they included the iconic Bill Murray Jeep ad that was wonderful, the Google Home ad, the Dancing Cowboys Doritos Sam Elliott ad. I mean, they were all just light and funny. There were a couple that didn't really connect. I mean, when Donald Trump is rating as low as Pop-Tarts, you know that <laughs> that uh, the product, it was just marginally higher. So so overall, it was a good game. Um, not a whole lot of uh, losers in that game. And the good news is that the ads that were purchased late in the game, third and fourth quarter, were like winning the lottery because the game really turned and became interesting for the audience that was there. What about the halftime show? Did you catch that at all? I mean, pole dancing? I mean, what do you think? I, you know, I, I, I saw the whole thing. I tried to turn away just out of respect for my wife, and, uh, but I was forced to consume it, and uh, it was like nothing I've seen before outside of Janet Jackson, which was uh, obviously a wardrobe malfunction. But now I think we've set new standards for a commercialized, sponsored half times, and we'll maybe see pole dancers for the future Super Bowls. That'd be great. The cost of these ads is absolutely staggering, isn't it? I mean, how much are these people paying? I mean, the Bloomberg ad and the Trump ad, I mean, how much did those cost? Well, Trump was at 30, so that was um, five and a half million. And then Bloomberg, I think his was uh, either 90 seconds or two minutes. So with the production, he probably spent $20 million bucks on doing that. And, you know, if it puts him on the map and now he's in the race, I'm telling you, it'll be a good investment. Do you have any other observations going forward? We got a presidential primary coming up here on March 10th. Uh, Michigan is the first real battleground state uh, on the roster of primaries uh, going forward. Do you think we're going to see a lot of expensive ads by Bloomberg, by Trump, by other people? What do you think? I think we'll see ads by Bloomberg. I, it'll be interesting to see if the other candidates step up. You know, if you think about Bernie Sanders winning Michigan uh, last time, uh, does the, the, do those voters stay with him? And are there any persuadable messages that uh, – kind of kick him out of the race. And Mayor Pete, great guy. Let's see if he can maintain uh, a Super Tuesday kind of momentum. And Joe Biden's really got to make a move. Elizabeth Warren, um, she might just run out of money and not be able to advertise. And it could be the end of her campaign. We had other things going on this week. I don't know if you had a chance to catch the State of the Union address and or Governor Gretchen Whitmer's response to it, did you? And what do you think about that? Well, I did see Governor Whitmer's response. I uh, plead guilty for watching the MSU basketball game <laughs> and, and missing the speech. I was able to tune in uh, just as uh, Nancy Pelosi was continuing ripping up President Trump's speech. So I really didn't feel like I missed anything. I will go back and watch it. I'll tell you that um, Gretchen Whitmer had a great response in the speech, she it was delivered extremely well and well-crafted. Uh, she had a lot of local lines like the Lions and other things that would be included to really connect with an audience. I think she's put herself 
on the national political map with that response. I think people are going to say she's smart, she's articulate, and a lot of people say she's hot. You know, she put out an ad this week uh, following up on her State of the State message last week about I'm going it alone, I'm going to bond to fix the damn roads because I can't get any cooperation from the legislature. I don't know whether you had a chance to see the ad or not. She's driving around. Back to the Super Bowl ads. How did this year's ads stack up overall with previous years, do you think? Well, uh, good. It was a good year for the Super Bowl. It, it, um, I'll be interested to see how the ratings hold up because the Nielsen numbers, you know, they, they always put them out initially, but there has to, do, has to be additional research. I think half the audience watches the Super Bowl for the ads. There's no reason why an 11-year-old girl is watching a football game, but she is for halftime and the ads and other things. So uh, I think it was a good game for the ads. I think it was a good game for the game of football, which has been surrounded by controversy. Right. Thank you so much, Bob Cole, President and CEO of Cole Communications, Professor of Practice at Michigan State University. You've done a great job, Bob Cole. Thank you, Bill Ballinger. You're the best. You're the best. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are fortunate to have on the other line with us Kyle Kondik. He is managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia. They are national political prognosticators. Kyle has been on before. Thank you so much for joining us again, Kyle Kondik. Good to talk to you, Bill. I want to ask you, Iowa, I think everybody knows at this point it was a debacle, and in fact it's a rolling debacle. It's still uh, uh happening even before our very ears and eyes right now. We don't know for sure who won or what the criteria. What do you think this means? Uh, What impact did it have on the various candidacies going forward, particularly uh, next week, New Hampshire primary and the calendar after that? What do you think? My wife's going to be in Iowa uh, this weekend, uh, and I told her she ought to try to still vote if she can, <laughs> because they, haven't, they really haven't finalized the, the vote count yet. Right. Um, it, it was a very crazy, and of course, because Iowa was reporting this, this sort of three different kinds of results, and they had you know the, 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 the poor volunteers at these caucus sites had these worksheets to fill out to try to do the calculations. I mean, it's a very convoluted process, and um, I think one of the good things for this Democratic primary season is that uh, a lot of states that have had caucuses in the past are moving toward primaries. Uh, Iowa demonstrates just, just how the caucus process, I think, is just it's very opaque, and, and we're, we're in a time of a lot of conspiracy theories, uh, and conspiracy theories can sort of grow out of things that are confusing, and Iowa certainly was confusing. Now, you know, Buttigieg and, and Sanders basically tied there. It seems like more, in terms of actual votes in the caucus, Sanders got more. Um, Buttigieg might come out with more delegates. Um, the polling in New Hampshire after Iowa has shown a boost for Buttigieg, I think, to the point where it looks like he's sort of the strongest competition for Sanders in New Hampshire. Sanders, of course, has kind of a home field advantage in New Hampshire. He's a longtime senator and congressman from the neighboring state of Vermont. 
Elizabeth Warren, who did okay in Iowa, uh, did not seem to be doing that great in New Hampshire, so she probably needs to pick it up in the final days here. Uh, uh, otherwise, I think she's going to be sort of second in line to Sanders amongst the sort of more uh, liberal progressive voters. And while I think we all knew that Iowa presented challenges for Joe Biden because Biden is so reliant on the support of African Americans and there really aren't that many African Americans in Iowa and the electorate there, but it's one thing to say that in advance, but then it's another thing to see the national frontrunner only get you know, only get about 15% in, in fourth place in Iowa, and he's been sort of sinking in these New Hampshire polls. So it's a dangerous time for Biden, and I would say in general this race is um, very uncertain at this point. It looks to me like Biden is probably going to be no better than fourth in New Hampshire. I mean, Buttigieg's surge in New Hampshire must be at the expense of Joe Biden, isn't it? I mean, it, it sure seems that way. If you just look at, you know, Buttigieg is going up and Biden's going down. I mean, you know, do, do the math. You sort of look at these surveys. And uh, I also think that to the extent that Amy Klobuchar is getting support, that that probably comes out of uh, voters who are probably likely to support Biden. And so you could look at it and say that there's kind of a more, uh, maybe a less liberal vote that is being split three ways amongst Biden, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg. And then Warren and Sanders are splitting the sort of more progressive vote. Although, you know, if Warren were to drop out today, it's not clear that all of her support would go to Sanders. Some of it might go to Buttigieg, some of it might go to Biden. Um, so, it's, you know, sometimes we talk about uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, lanes is a term that's used sometimes to describe these primaries and that there's a, you know, there are certain ideological lanes and maybe there are two of them. I think there are more than two of these, these lanes and there are these different candidates who are, are, are appealing to different parts of the, uh, of the electorate. So, again, it's a, uh, it, it's a tricky race and one that, uh, you know, if it doesn't really get settled by mid-March and you've got all these, these big states voting uh, March 3rd, March 10th, and March 17th, Michigan, of course, is a part of that on March 10th, if we don't have a clear leader by St. Patrick's Day, I don't know if anybody's going to be actually able to win the nomination uh, during the nomination season. Do you think what happened in Iowa spells doom for Iowa's the first in the nation caucus state uh, in 2024? For that matter, I mean, New Hampshire might be in trouble, too. I mean, frankly, I think that it should. Um, I think, say, particularly for Democrats, um, Iowa is so demographically unrepresentative of, of what the Democratic electorate is. The Democrats are very much a multiracial party. That's not to say that the Republicans only have white support, but the Republicans are clearly... Um, much more reliable than the Democratic Party is. And, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire are both lily white states. Uh, and also, you know, this, is, this, this isn't new that we have this sort of muddled, inconclusive result in Iowa. Just eight years ago, uh, Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, I mean, to this day, I don't know if it's 100% clear who actually won Iowa. I mean, it was basically tied. Um, now, it's easy to say today, in the aftermath of this embarrassment in Iowa, that, oh, well, Iowa's going to lose its place in 2024. But you know, by the time the parties actually come up with their, their nomination plans a years, you know, a couple of years from now as they look ahead to 2024 and what could be two open seats, depending on if the president wins again or not, or, or maybe it'll just be a competitive Republican primary, um, you know, will there actually be the political will to tell Iowa that caucuses go away? Frankly, I, I would hope that uh, the actual party leaders in Iowa and both parties will concede that the caucus process is, is is basically too messy and uh, too too kind of un, dissimilar to the, the less complicated primary process that they essentially just surrender their place. But if they don't, it's going to take political capital um, to actually to actually 
take that power away from them. So, I, you know, I just, I, you know, the, I see this sometimes. You know, something bad happens. There's this instant uh, desire for reform. And then over time, that white-hot anger sort of fades, and then nothing ends up changing. But I, I just don't know. I mean, I mean, again, I think Iowa should lose its place. Um, I think say particularly for the Democrats. Uh, but, you know, that again, the parties are used to having their contests on the same day. And will the Republicans want to preserve Iowa? We saw the president say that he wanted to preserve Iowa's place. He's certainly an important actor in, in, uh, in how, these, uh, how the, the nomination calendar gets set. So I just don't know. What about the primaries after New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina? Then you got Super Tuesday on March 3rd and March 10th. Michigan is really the first battleground state, essential state, to winning the presidency where we're going to have a primary. Yeah, I mean that's that's right, and uh, Michigan is is a really big prize on that on that March 10th date, which is doesn't have as many delegates nationally uh, as uh, Super Tuesday on March 3rd, and then sort of Super Tuesday Part Two on March 17th, where you've got uh, Illinois, Ohio, Florida, Arizona, a bunch bunch of big states voting. Uh, but Michigan is going to be a big focus of this race, just like it was in 2016 when Bernie Sanders won a. Pretty surprising victory, given that the polls seem to suggest that Clinton was um, was leading. Uh, I, what I'm curious about is if Buttigieg does well in New Hampshire again, can he perform better in states where uh, the, the electorates are not as demographically good for him? You know, it doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, you know a lot of white voters. He'd have to appeal to non-white voters, with, to whom he's shown little appeal at this point. Now, granted, Buttigieg is also kind of a not a highly nationally known commodity at this point. He's sort of proving himself, proved himself in Iowa, he could prove himself in New Hampshire. So maybe you'll start to see the numbers move if he does well in New Hampshire again. And look, Biden will probably be licking his wounds from another bad performance in New Hampshire unless something changes, uh, you know, before New Hampshire votes. Can he can he write the ship in states that are uh, demographically more favorable to him? Or are we looking at a... Um, you know, a front runner throughout 2019 who just sputters out. There's a real danger of that because uh, Biden's fundraising was never particularly strong, uh, and he needed, you know, he, he needs good publicity to come out of these early states to open up the money spigot. And man, that just hasn't happened. Yeah. Do you think uh, President Trump got a big boost out of his State of the Union speech and or his? acquittal by the U.S. Senate on the impeachment charges on Wednesday, or do you think that's going to fade pretty quickly? I personally think it's going to fade, um, and the reason for that is kind of a kind of a, a trend in polling that we've noticed lately that you notice at certain times. It's kind of complicated to explain, but let me see if I could do it. So um, if you, listeners may remember back in 2012 uh, during the Obama-Romney race when Obama was leading most, you know, most of the time, not by a lot, but by a little. And uh, the first debate happened, and, and as we all remember, uh, Obama really did poorly, and Romney really, really did well. Just, just objectively, Romney's performance was a lot better. And what happened is the polls started to change, and Romney actually seemed to take a little bit of a national lead. And what we found out later, after analyzing those polls in the aftermath, was that part of the reason that Romney went up in the polls was not because really public opinion had changed, but because. Republican intensity went up because they felt so much better about their performance and their candidate than Democrats felt about Obama. Right. And what I'm wondering is that uh, something similar might be happening with the president in that impeachment sort of hypercharged Republican intensity and his approval went up a little bit. And then maybe after impeachment is over, it falls back a little bit. So 
That's I got something you. to watch for. If we see enduring strength from, from Trump, better approval ratings, that may indicate that something really has changed and that maybe he is, is maybe more of a little bit of a favorite going into the, the November election. That is a great sum up from Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball in Virginia. Thank you so much, Kyle Kondik, for great insights. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back next week.